I was thinking this week about school and what it was like to be in school. You guys ever remember being in a classroom and all of a sudden the teacher started sounding like the teacher in the Charlie Brown specials, you know, wah, 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 like that, yeah. Yeah, I was that way in some classes, especially uh, one class in college called Calculus. Seriously, I had Mr. Rogers for a professor. This guy was the kindest, most articulate, most soft-spoken, and detailed man in the entire world. And he would get up and he would explain calculus to me and the rest of the class. And then after a few minutes, it was... And then maybe by the end of the classroom, he would start speaking English, and I would start to get it. I would go home and do my homework. And then, of course, the next class, we would start off with the wah, 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 because he's in a totally new subject. Um, I, I didn't pass that class, and I had to take it over. And I don't think I did in a... I didn't get a great grade the second time through. Maybe, maybe a C-plus or something. Then came Calculus 2, and <laughs> I dropped out halfway through the quarter, said, forget it, I'm changing my major. And, uh, and that's what I did. But, um, you know, if I didn't get the coursework done for the major that I was going for, there, there was no way to go on without getting it done. I don't know how to put it. You know how maybe when you were in first grade or second grade and they had certain requirements and the whole class is five and six years old and maybe you don't read quite as well as you should, but because it's the public school system and because the teacher is sick of kids after 30 years of teaching and because uh, it's just too much of a hassle and too much of expense to hold you back, they just kind of move you on to the next class. And second grade, you get there, and all of a sudden, it's worse because you never picked up what was really going on in first grade. And if you get enough of that, then you're done with school before school is done with you, if you know what I mean, and you're dropping out, like I did from Calculus 2. And <clears throat> there's a spiritual lesson to be learned there. I, I was wondering... What's God like when it comes to the lessons that we have to learn just for living? What about the spiritual lessons that, that Jesus would teach his disciples? How would he react if they didn't get it the first time or the second time? And there's something about trust in all this. It's like if I don't get something the first time with God or the second time with God, do I trust that he will give me a do-over? Or will he just flunk me and pretty soon I get kicked out of school? Those are the kind of questions that have been going through my head this week. 
because of the passage that we're going to read. If you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. I love this little story, probably for all the wrong reasons. It gives me some kind of macabre pleasure. Anyway, should be up there on the wall, I hope, at some point. Do we have it? There's no one back there? That's interesting. Aaron, going to save the day. Thank you. All right. Well, that's pretty. That was me just a couple years ago. All right, here we go. Mark eight eleven. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. <laughs> Let me just stop for a second. They are doing this all the time, isn't it? I mean, and, and, and you would think, like, are they coming because they have questions they want answered? Like they're really thirsty for Jesus' spiritual wisdom? No. If you read the Greek in this particular passage, you would know that it's not that kind of questioning that they're coming to Jesus with. It's more a testing, all right? They want to try to find out if he's going to slip up. So they say this, to test him, they asked him for a sign from, from heaven. He sighed deeply. <sighs> And said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. We had a sermon a couple weeks ago when Jesus doesn't act like Jesus. This could be one of those times, except we've been prepared for it, you know, because Jesus has been beleaguered by the Pharisees on numerous occasions. They've accused him of being in league with Satan. All sorts of crazy stuff, right? Uh, And he's explained to them from the scriptures that he's come to fulfill. He's done miraculous signs and wonders that were predicted in the book of Isaiah. He has gone the extra mile with them over and over again. And now, up to chapter 8, I think he's finally said... No more. And they come to him asking for a sign from heaven. They're, they're actually asking not for another miraculous sign. Jesus just got done feeding thousands and thousands of people on a couple different occasions with just a couple loaves of bread and some fish. And he's healed blind people and all sorts of things. He's, he's done, right? But they're not asking for that kind of a sign. What they want to know is, they want a sign from heaven. They want something that says, yes, indeed, Jesus is from God. The God that we know. The God that we worship. The God that we serve. How do we know that you are that man? So show us a sign from heaven. Like, verify who you are. And Jesus has said, I've given you enough and no sign will be given to, the, to you guys. That's it. Now, he's going to 
be crucified and raised from the dead. So that sign is still yet to come. But at this point, he's done. He's done. Giving them signs. Now, this raises an interesting question. Is there a time when Jesus will stop answering your questions? Is there a time when Jesus will say, no more sign will be given to you? Like, I've told you enough. Hold that question in your mind. We're going to move on to another group of people known as the disciples. Verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? This is Jesus being the teacher now. Put yourself in class, all right? It's time for a pop quiz. And Jesus is going back to something that happened just a little short time ago. How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And like grade school kids, they answer, Uh, twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, um, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Two groups of people. Both with questions. The first group of people, the Pharisees, are questioning Jesus and whether or not he's really from God. The second group of people, the disciples, are questioning whether or not Jesus is pissed off at him. Oh no, we forgot the bread. It's because of the bread. He's asking the question about the yeast of the Pharisees. We forgot the bread. Now, Jesus is so gentle and so kind with these guys because my reaction would have been something like this. You idiots! Of course I'm not talking about bread. I just got done making bread for thousands and thousands of people. If I wanted to, I could take your boogers and make them bread. 
We don't need, I'm not talking about bread. I could turn this whole lake into nothing but a lake of bread. (laughs) Duh. Excuse me. Don't you remember what I told you before? Why are you so stupid? You know what? I'm going to start over again. I'm going to start. You guys have flunked out of class. I'm done with you. I'm picking 12 more guys. Good thing I'm not Jesus. Because that's how I would have reacted. He is so tender and yet real with the disciples. I mean, come on, they are being stupid. But he's so tender that he is giving them a do-over. Not just once, not just twice, but now a third time. Because they don't understand who he is. That he loves them. That he's going to provide for them. That they don't need to worry about bread. What they've got to worry about is the yeast of the Pharisees. Jesus has used yeast once before already in a positive sense, yeast being that thing you put into a lump of dough when you're making bread, and the yeast kind of bubbles and gives off gases and things like that, and it makes the bread expand so it's not just one giant hard lump. When you cut a loaf of bread open, you see those little tiny holes in the bread, the little divots where your butter melts or your jam fills up when you're putting stuff on toast. That's because of the yeast that was there. And that little tiny lump of dough became like three times, four times as large, right? And so it's more edible. And so Jesus used yeast in a good way before, saying, you know, just like um, a little bit of yeast can leaven the whole dough, you know, good things can happen and work their way through the entire body, that kind of stuff, right? Well, here he's saying yeast is an example of how negative things can work their way through a group of people. So he's referring back to the Pharisees from before, and he's saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees, are, these are people who question in a whole different way. They're questioning whether or not Jesus is from God. Don't do that, is what Jesus is saying. Because you see, the Pharisees have an agenda for God. Don't be like this, Jesus says. Don't have an agenda for God. The Pharisees wanted Israel to be released from the tyranny of the Romans. They had an agenda for God. Sometimes I have an agenda for God, and Jesus says, Watch out, Mike, when you want things the way you want them. Because God's wisdom is higher than your wisdom. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And he does things backwards compared to your way of thinking. So don't start making God into your own image. The Pharisees had this idea that they could make 
all of Israel into the kind of holy nation that it was meant to be from the scriptures of old. They could somehow force people into loving and serving God. Jesus says, don't do that. And what I would say is, don't do that to the church. I'm sure that we all have ideas about how the church is meant to operate, about how they're supposed to follow God and the scriptures and things like that. You know what? Be careful. Be careful when you know how God wants to work through the church. Be careful. Be careful when you want to force Christians into your way of thinking. Why? It's the yeast of the Pharisees. Who are you to judge another man's servant? There's lots of things I don't like about the way the church operates in this country and around the world. But you know what? It's God's church. His problem. Let's go on to the disciples. These guys are acting like abused children. That's what they remind me of. I don't know how many of you have been around abused children or even abused pets. But you ever notice if you go down just to stroke the hair on a kid's head or even a dog that's been beaten, you know, you get this immediate jerking away. Like, don't, don't hurt me. Don't touch me. Don't, don't caress me because that, that might turn into a slap. And then I'd have this big red mark across my face or I'd be sent to my room without supper or something like that. The disciples are acting to me like... like Kids who have been abused because they think that Jesus is really going to be pissed off at them for forgetting the bread. We forgot the bread. Oh no. What's he going to do to us? It's not good to piss off somebody who can change you into a toad. And so Jesus has to back up. I mean, I, I, I'm a parent. My oldest child is 29 years old. My youngest is 19. I've had a lot of years of parenting experience. I love my children. And honestly, over the years, I've seen why God has made me a parent because sometimes they do really, really dumb things or they don't get the lessons the first time like don't put your hand into the electrical socket don't put your finger, you know, don't grab the wires, don't put your hand in the stove, don't run out in the street without looking don't do all those kind of things when they're little you know and so you go over these lessons time and time again because you love the kid because you don't want the kid run over by the car in the street. 
when they get older, it's like, don't drink and drive. If you've had too much to drink, just call me, let me know. Just do not get behind the wheel of that car. Be careful who you date. Be careful. You could wind up with a heart that's bruised and battered. And, you know, when they mess up or when they do, you know, then you, you, you have to address it honestly and still love them. Yeah. Bad idea. Let's go on. Don't worry about the accident. It's just a car. It's just metal. It can be replaced. But leave more space between you and the car in front of you next time, could you please? So you got to bring the correction, but you do it in as loving a way possible. Hopefully, if you do it well, long enough, they don't shy away when you bring the word of correction. These guys are getting a do-over. Do you not trust who I am? Do you not trust that I will take care of you? Do you not trust that I'm not mad at you because you forgot the bread? How many basketfuls did you bring up the first time? How many basketfuls did you bring up the second time? I'm not mad at you because you're only possessing one loaf of bread. Now, I am a pastor. I have done this for years now. Haven't always been, but it's been a good long time. And I have to learn these lessons myself over and over again. I find that I can trust the heart of God. Trust is an interesting concept. Faith is, is different than trust. Faith, sometimes just the, the, the evidence so overwhelms you that you can't help but believe. Faith would be like, let's say, Dave Weatherby told me that he could sing like Luciani, Luciano Pavarotti, okay? Some operatic tenor. And I would say, I do not believe in you, David Weatherby, that you can sing like an operatic tenor. And all of a sudden, Dave stands up and he comes out with this aria from, you know, Barber of Seville or something. And I'm going, whoa, okay, fine, I believe. I believe. I am overwhelmed by the evidence that you are presenting. I cannot help but not believe, but believe. I cannot help but believe because I've been overwhelmed. Like faith is almost involuntary. You see what I'm saying? It's almost involuntary. Trust, on the other hand, is voluntary. I have to trust, when I married my wife, I had to trust that she would stay faithful to her vows. Do I know for sure that she's going to stay faithful to her vows? No, I do not. Does she know that I will? No, she does not. So I decide, I make a decision to trust her. That's trust. 
I'm not talking about faith in this passage. I'm talking about trusting the heart of God. Trusting that Jesus loves us. Trusting that He is good. That He's not ticked off all the time. That He gives us do-overs and do-overs until we finally get it. Because in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to me is He will not pass us on if we don't learn the basic lessons. Learn the basic lessons here, then we'll go to here. And if you never get on from the first grade of spiritual learning, you will die a first grader in the kingdom of God. That's the way it works. Why? Because he loves you too much to pass you on if you don't get the lessons you need to learn. So many lessons. Lessons about relating to God. Lessons about relating to other people in the church. Lessons about relating to people in the workplace and in the world. There's all kinds of lessons. He will not pass us on until we get it. Why? Because he loves us. Will he tell us that, hey, you've got a lesson to learn here? Okay, remember last time we went over this? Okay, Mike, remember last time you dated that non-Christian girl? Remember that? Okay, how did that go, Mike? Bad. Okay. And, and remember the girl you dated after that? Remember that? How did that one go? Bad again. Okay, Mike, when are you going to learn that you can be friends with non-Christian girls all you want, but I don't want you in a romantic relationship. I don't want you marrying a non-Christian girl. Just one one lesson. Trust. So, I'm getting ready for this sermon, right? And I cannot get it together. I mean, I have talked to brilliant minds about this sermon. We had a preaching team at Scum of the Earth. I talked to people at Scum of the Earth. I talked to my friend Jim Emig, who's here. I talked to uh, Les Avery, another guy. I read sermons online. I read multiple commentaries. I mean, like, not one, not two, not three, but multiple commentaries trying to get ready for this sermon. And I just can't get it together. I just can't f- figure it out. I can't... It's like I got all these ingredients, and I'm trying to make a meal, but I don't have the recipe book. I don't know how to put them together. I don't know how long to cook it. I don't know when to serve it. I don't know how to do it. Lord, how do I do it? I need help. I need help. I need help. I don't know how to do this. I'm getting upset. I'm getting angry. I mean, a couple nights ago, I mean, I had went to Jill and Roger's wedding on Saturday, and I felt guilty for going to the wedding, and then I went to the reception, and I felt bad about that, and I got home, and I'm going, I'm pouting inside. I'm upset because I can't get this sermon straight, and I still went to the wedding. I'm mad at myself for that, and, and I'm going, oh, God, you know, I'm worried because I'm handling the Word of God, and the Word of God is very precious, and God is very particular about how you handle the Word of God, and so I am being a jerk to my son. You know, he wants to do something in the living room. I'm going, no, you can't do any stuff. I get this, I get this living room at least once a week. You can't play Xbox every single night in the living room. I'm going to be here. So no. And my wife says something to me. I chop her head off with my words. I'm just being a jerk. I go to bed last night mad, angry, because I can't get it together. 
I wake, I have a fitful night full of weird dreams. I wake up in the morning, I'm still angry. I got an hour before morning church and I've got to try and put it together. And, you know, Mary's getting ready. And, and then she says something like, you know, just pray and God will give you the words that you need when you need them. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. And I'm going, oh yeah. I preached that a couple weeks ago. It was the feeding of the 5,000. Now I remember. It's not about my surplus. It's about Jesus and what He can do with a little bit that I have. Hey, Mike, remember that sermon a couple weeks ago? We talked about the 5,000. You remember that one? Yeah. Remember how you couldn't get it together? And you remember how you were so worried and you went up front with barely any notes and I gave you the words? Yeah. And how about this morning, Mike? What do you think I can do this morning? Okay. I'm just like the disciples. I'm as stupid as they are. It's like Jesus is going, Mike, it's a do-over this morning. You didn't learn the lesson last time. I mean, literally, folks, these are my notes. One page. That's all I got. If you figure that out for a second, most of what I said is not on here. So, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust that He will take the little bit that I have to offer and actually make something good come out of it? It's about trusting the heart of God. Is God concerned about Mike Sayers and about his job? Yes. Is he more concerned about the numbers of people who are here on a Sunday night hearing the Word of God? Yes. He's much more concerned about them in a quantitative manner because there are a couple hundred of you and there's one of me. So I need to trust him that he's good, that he loves me, that he wants to feed you all with a little bit one loaf that I have. And I have to learn the lesson all over again that I should have learned a few weeks ago at the feeding of the 5,000. I am so grateful for the do-overs that I can trust the heart of God is kind and good toward me and will give me as many do-overs as I need. And if I never progress past the third grade, you know what? He'll take me to heaven a third grader. And we'll probably continue from there. Except I think my chances of success are greater. Perfected saints, perfect place. Yes. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about the possibilities of growing and learning and becoming more like Jesus, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Farther up and farther in. I want you to think about the lessons that you've blown in the past. I don't know if they're lessons about studying, about how you work at work, how you pray. Maybe they're lessons about lying, telling the truth. Maybe they're lessons about sexual morality. Maybe they're lessons about... Substance abuse. Maybe there are lessons about 
being fearless or a coward. Maybe there are lessons about how to love your family of origin or how to forgive people that have hurt you badly. I don't care how many times you blow those lessons. You can trust in the heart of God that he loves you and will continue to work with you like a good teacher works with you. He may, he may roll his eyes once or twice. He may ask you very painful questions like, remember the last time we did this and last time I did something for you? How'd that turn out? Good. But he will always give you another chance. There are do-overs in the kingdom of God. It's not about the bread. It's about Jesus. It's not about the bread. It's about Jesus. It's not about the bread. It's about Jesus. I think Jesus made sure bread was one of those metaphors that he used a lot of in teaching the disciples, right? Throughout the scriptures, we see him talking about bread. Before Jesus was crucified, he had a final meal with his disciples. Bread was involved. And he grabbed a loaf of bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, no longer is this just a piece of bread. This has now become my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread in the future, I don't want you to think about just bread. I want you to think about me. I want you to think about what I'm doing for you. I want you to think about our relationship together. And then he took a cup of wine, and he did the same thing with the wine. He said, This is no longer just a cup of wine, this is now my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink this, remember the new covenant that I'm making with you that all your sins are going to be forgiven. The ones you've committed in the past, the ones you're committing right now in your, in your head or in your actions or in your words, and the ones you will commit in the future. All of those sins are being washed away by my blood, the sacrifice that I'm about to make. It's not just wine anymore. It's me. It's not just bread anymore. It's me. Trust in me. Put your trust in me. So Jesus has given us this sacrament of communion. It is for those who love him and who follow him. And if you are one of those who loves Jesus and follows Jesus, then you are welcome to share in the communion we offer here at Scum of the Earth. You're always welcome. No restrictions. 
if you're still wondering if Jesus is from God, then maybe you don't want to eat the bread or drink the cup just quite yet. Get those questions settled first. And then have communion. Let's let's take a few questions and answers. Um, obviously, a lot of this sermon was unscripted. Um, I have no idea if I missed some things that maybe you need to talk about. So, please, if you got a question or a comment, uh, raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead. Roll out. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? The yeast of the Pharisees, I think, would be in a basic one-word answer, um, lack of trust, unbelief. You don't believe that Jesus is from God. That um, you have an agenda for God and that God becomes your puppet as opposed to uh, you becoming God's servant in the earth. I think that's basically it. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead. Do I think that Jesus is unwilling? What? Do I think that Jesus is unwilling to deal with people like the Pharisees who are in that situation of questioning? Is that the question? No, because if you read the chapters before this one, um, he is very patient in answering their questions, in doing things that they would recognize as being from the Messiah and from God. Uh, he, uh, he, is, he, he, he actually indulges them in, uh, in conversation, um, so, so I think he's totally willing. I think there is a point, though, uh, that we can reach where we're asking questions for questions' sake. Or even if we get the answer that we're looking for, we're going to sit back with our arms folded going, maybe, I'm still not sure. I think at that point, Jesus says, enough. Maybe, uh, you know, come back when you're really, really interested. So, Yeah. But I don't think that he would be adverse to even any one of the Pharisees like Nicodemus coming to him late at night, one-on-one. Hey, we really want to know some things. We know that you're a teacher with lots of power and stuff, but we don't quite understand. And so I think he's certainly willing to work with people, always, every time. But, uh, but I do think there comes a point where he refuses to play our games. Some people just like to ask questions to ask questions. I'm one of those people. My conversion experience, um, I would ask questions in Bible study class uh, uh, just to stump the teacher. I mean, seriously, I would. I, 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 was, I was one of those guys. And um, he stopped answering my questions at one point. <laughs> just kept going. So I don't mind that kind of thing. And the, Even the not answering questions actually can be... Uh, a severe mercy to force you to start asking the right kind of questions. So, there was another question over here, I think. 
Yeah, go ahead. Right. When I was talking about faith, and I said that it was almost an involuntary response to overwhelming evidence, doesn't faith have some trust element to it? Um, yes, I think so. I think for the sake of this sermon, I needed to define those two things. But I'm a, you know, I believe in Jesus. Um, I am overwhelmed by the evidence. There's no question in my mind that God is who we he said he was, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Holy Spirit's alive and well. But I need to learn how to trust. That is the way, that is the path of, um, of, of a Christian. Um, I actually bought a book called Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning, and I had tagged a few places to read during my sermon, which I did not because I forgot. Um, um, this is inter- I'll just read a couple quotes. The underlying premise of this book The splendor of a human heart, which trusts that it is loved, gives God more pleasure than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Um, There's a couple other places I wanted to read. The decisive, or what I call the second conversion, from mistrust to trust, a conversion that must be renewed daily, is the moment of sovereign deliverance from the warehouse of worry. So life-changing is this ultimate act of confidence in the acceptance of Jesus Christ that it can properly be called the hour of salvation. Um... The words of the 15th century theologian Angelus Celestius, if God stopped thinking of me, he would cease to exist, are thoroughly orthodox. Celestius merely paraphrases the message of Jesus. Can you not buy five sparrows for two pennies, and yet not one is forgotten in God's sight? Why, every hair on your head has been counted. There is no need to be afraid. You are worth more than hundreds of sparrows. So... I recommend uh, this uh, this book highly. Yeah, um, there was one over here, and then we'll go to Mark. Somebody over here? Yeah, go ahead. Once the disciples gained the Holy Spirit, how did that change the doer, doer part? Um, <laughs> well, I, I think it helped because now the voice of Christ was in here and in here and speaking to them and letting them know what was right and what was wrong. Peter's, Peter's dream of, for example, the, the, the unclean animals coming down from heaven and, and urging him to go to Cornelius' house, or even Paul and Peter having a disagreement about what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat in front of Gentile believers. I think, um, uh, you know, again, Jesus is over and over again giving him the opportunity to do what's right. So it really, I mean, Jesus, in some ways, this is terrible, it's like that Star Wars thing, you know, where, where Obi-Wan Kenobi 
you know, leaves and goes, and all of a sudden, then he's this voice that follows Luke everywhere. Sort of kind of like that. <laughs> Although, like a million times better. <laughs> all right. Yeah. One, one more. Mark? I'm sorry. I'll come back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sometimes you just need to trust in God, uh, even when everything else looks like it doesn't line up. Yeah, when the evidence is not there. Trust is, is a voluntary action. Faith is sometimes more involuntary. Yes, exactly. Uh, down here, who, who is up? Marcus. I, what grade am I in? It depends uh, on the day and <laughs> it depends on the lesson. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, last night when I was in living with, with my son and my wife and I was mad at him and yelling at him, probably something like preschool, I think. All right, uh, one more. Why did Jesus specifically say this generation? Well, there's two answers to that question. Um, one answer would be the generation that he was right there with, the generation that was seeing him doing the miracles, the generation that would see him uh, be crucified and rise from the dead. The other, <laughs> the other possibility is that Jesus sometimes used generation in more of um, kind of a, a last generation sense like okay these are the beginning of the end times uh this generation of people is the one that's going to see my death my resurrection and my return you know this is like the final age of the world because we have the scriptures we have the the commentary right uh we have we have what jesus said so we're still learning from that we're still learning uh uh Actually, in another uh, gospel, I think in the gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus uh, says, and uh, Matthew adds, no sign will be given this generation except for the sign of Jonah. Of course, the sign of Jonah being Jonah was, was hidden for you know, a few days in the great belly of the great fish and then comes back out and preaches, right? Um, that kind of a sign. So, pointing again to his... his his crucifixion and death, and then his resurrection. So, yeah, it could be very literal or it could be metaphorical. I do not know the answer to the question. Okay, we're going to quit. And uh, at Scum of the Earth, if you've never taken communion before, uh, we'll have um, a plate of bread and a cup. You'll tear off some of the bread. You'll dip it into the cup and eat it that way right there or sit down at your seat or go outside um, there will be, I think, usually uh, if you're allergic to, to glutens and things like that, there will be some gluten-free bread up here on the top floor, and then down here there will be regular bread. All right, uh, let's... Oh, yes, during prayer, during communion, there will be prayer. If you have something you would like prayed about, please come back to the prayer cave, that little brown room there, and uh, have your requests prayed for with a person right then and there. All right, let's pray and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time.
Uh, thank you for the patience of the people here. Uh, I ask that uh, you would bring this truth to us and help us to live in the fact that we are loved beyond measure and trust in your heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.